Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. If it's Wednesday, confronting crises amid mass shootings, abortion rights fights, inflation and existential threats to our planet and our democracy, President Biden may be also facing a crisis of confidence as the midterms get closer. Plus, a confession in the July 4th attack in Highland Park, Illinois, as we learned that the shooter there was considering a second attack. The latest on the investigation and what the nation's attorney general is saying about it. That's in just a moment. And later, summer heat and storms putting tens of millions of Americans under risk of severe weather as scientists try to turn up the heat, warning of the consequences of congressional inaction on climate. We're going to talk to one of the top reporters on the beat. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Peter Alexander, and President Biden just wrapped up an event in Cleveland touting his administration's efforts to focus on the economy. But with the president's poll numbers falling, notably absent from today's appearance, they're both the Democratic nominee for Senate and governor in that state. President Biden's trip comes as he faces renewed pressure from members of his own party to respond to Americans' increasing anger and their frustration about their finances, their safety, and the direction of this country. Just 10 percent of Americans right now think the U.S. is on the right track compared to 88 percent who say the country's headed in the wrong direction. That's according to a recent poll by Monmouth. And Americans' confidence in our institutions from the Supreme Court to the presidency all down from a year ago. A quick look at today's headlines and you can see the anger that's emerging. Democrats wanting more from the president on guns and abortion. And they question whether he is capable of meeting this moment. As the Washington Post sums it up, Democratic criticisms of Biden get louder and broader. Just last month, when President Biden acknowledged that, quote, people are really, really down, we said it's the job of the national leaders to make the country feel like the nation's problems are not out of control. And at the same time, we warned that a leadership vacuum could be forming. In nearly three weeks since, we have had more than a dozen mass shootings, including Monday's awful attack in Highland Park, a Supreme Court decision repealing Roe v. Wade, bombshell testimony before the January 6th committee, and Russia, of course, keeps gaining ground in Ukraine. There are some potential bright spots for this White House, including perhaps the revival of some parts of the Democrats' Build Back Better bill and a slight drop in the price of gas, emphasizing the urgency. The president's allies tell me that they believe voters in this country will have made up their minds by the end of the summer about how they'll vote in November's midterms. But that concern about leadership, the vacuum there we warned about, is not going away. If anything, Democrats worry that it is only getting worse. Joining me now to dive into all of it, what's going on inside the White House, my friend and colleague there, NBC's Mike Memley. Man, let me ask you about this. You talk to Democrats and they want to hear that outrage from President Biden. They want to see their own anger and frustration sort of delivered through him as the conduit. They want him to be more combative. What does the White House say about this increased sort of public venting about the president? 
Well, Peter, whenever I talk to White House officials about moments like this, when there is criticism, not from the opposing party, but from their own party, these advisors, who many of which were also part of the Biden campaign in 2020, talk about the same conversation that was happening at this point three years ago, that Biden wasn't as progressive as Elizabeth Warren, couldn't win the nomination, wasn't as feisty as Bernie Sanders, couldn't win the nomination, wasn't, you know, young like Pete Buttigieg, couldn't win the nomination. And then guess what happened? Joe Biden won the Democratic nomination and he was elected president of the United States. So a lot of this kind of criticism they point out is anonymous, is coming from the same quarters that doubted the president was going to become president in the first place. But they also acknowledge that the national mood is one that they take quite seriously. You can't look at a 10 percent right track number and think that there is nothing that the White House can do to address it. And I think we saw what was the makings of an attempted sort of reboot into the summer months that we've been, Peter, you and I have heard this countless times. The president's going to get out on the road more. He's going to speak directly to the American people. Well, this time the White House insists he really means it. He's been sort of consumed primarily by foreign policy over the last two months. He's had a series of summits, foreign travel. He has one more trip coming up next week. And they promise that once that is over, you're going to see the president doing a lot more of what he was doing today, talking about walking around that stage, uh, getting feisty as he talked about the choice he said voters are going to be facing this fall, laying out the contrast with Republicans. But the real question is, is this going to be too little too late uh, for a, a number of Democrats who really have wanted to see this kind of fire at a much earlier point? Hey, Amen. I know even as we've been speaking, we got a little bit of breaking news. This is behind right. the scenes, so people at home may not be familiar with these names. But it does matter in terms of the messaging and the private conversations that happen there. Kate Bedingfield, who has been a Biden ally, a member of his team for quite a long time, she's going to be leaving as his communications Director, does that sort of give us any cues about what the team's going to look like as they head into the midterms this fall? Well, with the departure now later this month of Kate Bedingfield, who's been the communications director, not just here at the White House since day one, but for the Biden campaign since day one three years ago, we now have what amounts to an almost complete turnover of the yeah. White House press operation in terms of the senior leadership. Jen Psaki, of course, leaving within the last few months as well. Uh, you have had a number of lower level press aides also departing or in the process of departing. There has been a lot of criticism of the White House messaging operation, but as one official has put it, we don't have a messaging problem. We have a $5 a gallon of gas problem. And these are some of the many sort of factors that are beyond a president's control that they feel like are weighing down. And I've talked to outside advisors uh, to this White House as well who've done polling, for instance, in sort of battleground states where we're going to see key Senate races, key House races this fall. And they say, listen, yes, the president's numbers are not in good territory, but they're actually better than some of the other incumbents. They pointed to Ron Johnson, for instance, in Wisconsin. Uh, Biden's approval rating in that state, 42 percent. Ron Johnson's was in the upper 30 percent. So they say the mood of the electorate towards anyone in office right now is very negative. They understand that there's more that they can do for the president to get his message out. We're seeing, for instance, Vice President Kamala Harris. There's been so much discussion of her role or lack thereof in the administration right. from the earliest days. She has come on, I think, in a much more significant way on abortion, on voting rights, uh, on a number of other issues, as we saw just yesterday uh, with the latest shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, on guns, uh, to sort of speak uh, to that sort of frustration that a lot of Democrats want to hear more of as well. And that's part of the equation White House officials say moving forward. Yeah, no doubt. Some of the frustration with the messaging, others with the messenger. 
Democrats know now's the time to really sort of demonstrate some action in these waning months before electors or voters make up their minds. Mike Memley on the North Lawn for us, Mem. Thanks for helping us out. We do want to turn to the very latest now from Highland Park, Illinois, where the prosecutors there now say the man charged with a mass shooting at Monday's July 4th parade has confessed to those crimes. He's already been charged with seven counts of first-degree murder and could face additional charges in the upcoming days. Authorities also say the suspect admitted to considering a second attack just across the border in Madison, Wisconsin. That's basically an hour away where he drove after the shooting but chose not to open fire. Meanwhile, the medical examiner has identified the seventh victim from Monday's shooting, 69-year-old Eduardo Uvaldo. And joining me now on the ground in Highland Park is NBC correspondent uh, Dasha Burns. Also with me is our NBC investigations correspondent. That's Tom Winter. Tom, let me get to you right away. The officials, they laid out plenty of new information at this news conference this morning, including that fact that the suspect had confessed to the shooting. Walk us through some of the other headlines that we learned, including those first degree murder charges. Yeah, a couple of key things there, Peter. So apparently he told them that he was the person on the surveillance video. They walked through the surveillance video with him. And we're talking, of course, about Robert Cremo III, who is the person who police say have do- has done this shooting and has been charged with seven counts of homicide, convicted on any one of them, and he'll go to jail for the rest of his life. Essentially walked him through the shooting. He said that he got to the top of the roof, looked in his sights, and started firing down the street at the crowd. He reloaded twice. Uh, 83 rounds were or, or uh, spent uh, shell cartridges, I should say, were found at the uh, roof location. Um, the whole thing, Peter, took a little bit less than 20 minutes. And from the moment he was firing to when he got off the roof, uh, took under two minutes. Um, he then told them that, yes, in fact, I did dress up uh, as a woman in order to try and uh, evade capture. Uh, interestingly, he left behind the gun uh, because uh, he said he dropped it and then he was concerned that people would recognize that he was carrying it. So uh, that was a bit of a development. And of course, they now say that it was, in fact, tracing that gun uh, that did get him to the point where they could identify who this individual uh, was, matched it up with a photo, took the video surveillance and and put two and two together. So uh, that was interesting. The other uh, detail that we got, as you alluded to, was this idea that while he was in Wisconsin as an effort to evade capture, and while he left his cell phone there, presumably thinking that authorities would try to then go to Wisconsin to find him because that's where his cell phone would be pinging off of a tower. Uh, He says that uh, while he was there, he saw another celebration, uh, possibly a July 4th celebration. He had uh, 60 rounds on him, but he says he didn't do enough planning uh, to carry out an attack, but he did think about doing it. So just a little bit of what we learned next uh, court date here, Peter, it's going to be July 28th. So, Tom, walk me through one other thing. Officials specified there was never a firearm restraining order. The red flag laws that we've been talking about involving this suspect. So help us understand why it isn't enough for the parents of this young man to have called the police on their son, saying that he's threatening to kill everyone. They came to his home in 2019. They took knives, a dagger. They took a sword as well. What more needs to be done? That doesn't count as raising the red flag. Well, the parents would have had to make a specific complaint, either to law enforcement or to themselves. And I think that's something that people uh, sometimes uh, miss in these laws, uh, Peter, is that with red flag laws, uh, typically you don't even need to go to police. You just need to file a petition with the court. The judge will then review what you present to them in May at that point uh, order. And it depends upon the state, kind of the mechanisms of this. So I'm not speaking uh, that this is a law that carries across all states that have this. But generally speaking, uh, and in the instance of, uh, of 
Illinois, you would go to the court and the judge would determine, okay, this person is a threat to themselves or others, does in fact have guns or weapons, and signs a search warrant for police to go to that home and get those guns. It's not an indefinite time period, and the person does have the ability to challenge it, but it's not something where you have to involve police. You can go directly to the courts. Right. But the key thing there to address your question, Peter, is that he did not have guns at that point, and nobody indicated within the family, his parents, uh, that he was an imminent threat to himself or others, and there was no illegality with respect to those knives. If he had been convicted on a felony count, he never would have been able to buy those guns. Yeah, his father ultimately sponsored his gun license application. Dasha, I want to get to you. Obviously, we learned today about a seventh victim just identified earlier today. I'm still haunted by the image of this two-year-old boy who was found effectively buried beneath his dad who had been shot and killed. It's such an awful circumstance as as we now have the, the suspect confessing, but so many of these families are living with this grief and this pain for so long. How is that community, you know, doing today? Yeah, Peter, it's forever changed. You know, when the cameras go away, when uh, we're weeks and months and years past this, uh, it's going to be a scar that has to heal, that this community will wear for forever, really. And we're seeing people start to come to terms with that here today. Right behind me, you can see the scene of the parade, the scene of this tragedy. And we've seen small groups gathering here throughout the day, bringing flowers, uh, consoling each other, holding each other. I met a father of two who came out here, a man named Justin. He wanted to come and see just how close they were. And he welled up with tears when he saw just how close they were to to the shooter, to this tragedy, to the people, he said, whose faces he recognized on the TV when when we showed those images of the people who had died. He said, they looked familiar. We were in the crowd near them. I spoke earlier, Peter, to two little girls, nine-year-old Lily and 11-year-old Sydney. They actually really wanted to talk to me because they wanted other children to hear from them, to hear that it's okay to still be afraid and it's okay to talk about this scary thing that happened to them. I want you to hear from Lily and Sydney. Take a listen. Yeah, I'm still like scared of like maybe some louder noises, like when there was fireworks. That scared me, but mm-hmm. um, I I'm still scared of like big noises, so like police sirens and stuff. I I just feel scared at now parades. Um, thinking about this would happen again. Yeah, those girls say they don't want to go to a parade again. Loud noises still really scare them. And this is reverberating all across the country. We just heard from Attorney General Merrick Garland, who put out a statement. He said he grew up not too far from here and that this is just another example of the horror that we face in this country when it comes to gun violence. And he said we don't need any more examples. And that's certainly how so many people in this community here feel, Peter. It's so hard to hear from those little girls. I got daughters roughly the same age and just to try to initiate a conversation with them after what we've witnessed at the school in Texas and now what happened in Highland Park. It's just so awful. Tom, we were talking about Uvalde, you know, so recently and now uh, there is some breaking news coming from the investigation at the school there, a new report raising more questions about the response by law enforcement. What more are we learning? That uh, that document, as well as some court documents we just uh, received uh, from the Highland Park shooting. But back to 
Valdi, uh, this 26-page report uh, produced by Texas State University's uh, kind of research arm that focuses on active shooters and is actually responsible for some of the active shooter training in Texas. And they uh, said that uh, uh, there were three kind of key findings prior to that shooter going into the school, too, we've been well aware of, uh, that a uh, Uvalde school's uh, officer saw the shooter, was but was driving too fast, couldn't quite identify them, uh, and, and the a threat prior to him getting into the school, that one of the school doors was open that the shooter went through, uh, in that when the teacher uh, went to shut it and lock it, either didn't lock it or couldn't figure out whether or not it was locked. But the third component of this is something that is new today, and that was information received that a Uvalde City police officer apparently had the shooter in his rifle sight. So he had a rifle, he was in his sights, identified the shooter as having a gun, Asked for permission, though, to shoot first, and by the time he, the shooter was out of range, uh, it was over. Uh, so he never got permission uh, to fire that shot, and he never fired the shot himself, presumably with the shooter in his sights, had he fired the uh, shooter at the Uvalde school, the Robb Elementary School, never would have been able to get in to those classrooms. The report says Texas law would have allowed him to fire in that instance because it would have been reasonable for the police officer to believe that the shooter was in a, uh, a position to commit a crime, namely murder. And under Texas state law, he could have fired uh, without asking for any approval. So that is uh, uh, yet another card in the stack of, uh, of issues that occurred in Uvalde. Only going to add to the pain and hardship that so many in that community mm -hmm. are still dealing with. Dasha, thank you for your work on the ground there at Highland Park. Tom, thanks for your expertise on these topics as well. And coming up right here, the fight for Roe from the front lines. Congresswoman Judy Chu is going to join me just days after getting arrested at a rally right there in front of the Supreme Court, where she sees the battle going from here next. Plus, former President Trump's White House counsel will testify behind closed doors to the January 6th committee. We have an exclusive interview with a district attorney who just subpoenaed some of the former president's other top allies. You're watching Meet the Press now. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Welcome back. As we said at the start of the show, abortion rights is one of the main sources of Democrats' frustration with President Biden. Some Democrats right now are calling for more action from the White House's access to abortion services across the country is shrinking. 
the Jackson Women's Health Organization, the state's only abortion clinic there in Mississippi and the clinic at the heart of last month's Supreme Court case overturning Roe. Well, it closes at the end of business today. That comes after a judge there in Mississippi rejected a request yesterday to block the state's trigger law from going into effect. Barring any new lawsuits, the judge's decision paves the way for Mississippi's abortion ban to go into effect tomorrow. Mississippi's new law will ban all abortions with narrow exceptions for the health of the mother or in the case of a rape that has been reported to police. It does not have exceptions for incest. I'm joined now by California Congresswoman Judy Chu, who introduced a bill in September that would have codified Roe. She was arrested at an abortion rights rally near the Capitol last week. Congresswoman Chu, we appreciate your being with us. You were obviously willing to get arrested to draw attention to this issue that affects so many Americans. Specifically, what more do you want to see the White House and President Biden do right now? The White House has already been very responsive. First of all, I was very glad that President Biden made the statement that he thought that there should be a carve out for the filibuster for abortion. Uh, That is where we're stuck as far as the Senate. We need two more votes to eliminate the filibuster and then we could get the Women's Health Protection Act passed and signed into law, and it would enshrine the protections of Roe versus Wade uh, into law, therefore protecting every woman in every state. So, But on top of that, I hope that the Biden administration will indeed push the fact that abortion medication has been approved by the FDA, and there is not a state jurisdiction that can overturn an FDA decision And that this should be enforced in every state, regardless of whether they banned abortion or not. And of course, Congresswoman, I was going to say those abortion pills obviously account for more than half the abortions in this country right now. You talk about the desire to get those two votes that you need among Democratic senators to be able to overcome the filibuster. The votes aren't there right now, even though Democrats obviously control the Senate. What we're witnessing now is more a consequence of 2016 than it is of 2020. So how do you message to those frustrated, those disheartened Democrats that voting in the election this fall alone may not be enough, that this could be a long-term fight for the party? Well, actually, we could turn things around with this coming election. We do need two more senators to eliminate the filibuster and to vote for the Women's Health Protection Act. We have senators like John Fetterman in Pennsylvania and, and Mandela Barnes. Of course, that on top of everything else. But these are things that are within our reach. These are things that people's votes can accomplish and they can actually make Roe versus Wade the law of the land. So people's votes are so very, very important on those two specific uh, elections, but also on the state level where there are very, very important issues like in California where we have I think we might have lost the Congresswoman. We'll give it five seconds to see if the connection comes back. Oh, there you are. Sorry, we lost you for a second. I'm going to try again and hope this works, fearing that I lost the end of your last answer. But Congresswoman, your colleague Ro Khanna right now has, has said that these sort of public venting by Democrats right now about the president, that he worries that it could be counterproductive right now. Is that your view? I actually 
believe that President Biden has been doing everything that he can. And uh, they have been coming up with uh, solutions uh, that they still have to work on. But uh, they have been coming up with things such as the medication abortion issue, such as working on uh, ensuring that women can cross state lines. And um, I hope actually that they can make sure that their regulatory agencies also ensure data privacy of women who access abortions or inquire about abortions. So simple term, should Democrats, those within your party, stop complaining about the president right now? Is that hurting things? We all need we all need to work together. And there's so many things that we need to do to ensure that women are taken care of in this situation where 26 states will ban abortion. So it is indeed going to take a village to make sure that in the short term, women can access abortion by crossing state lines. But in the long term, ensuring that Roe versus Wade is indeed enshrined into law and that it cannot be overturned. And let me ask you about one of the frustrations for some of those Democrats right now. These emails released by Kentucky Democratic officials, they seem to show that President Biden had been planning to nominate an anti-abortion lawyer to a lifetime appointment as a federal judge. What does that say to you about the president's understanding of the urgency of this issue? Well, one thing is uh, that we certainly cannot afford to have anti-abortion judges uh, even further nominated to these positions. We already are feeling the effects of Trump's appointments of the federal judges, and it is setting us back. Of course, it is setting us back enormously with the Supreme Court, which is now in a six to three Uh, majority against abortion, as well as so many other issues that are critical to Democrats. So uh, I I hope that most of all, that this particular nomination does not go through. The Women's Health Protection Act that you know so well about, obviously, would effectively sort of guarantee the right to an abortion in this country. It passed the House last year. It failed in the Senate back in May before the Supreme Court ruling on this issue. You want to put it back on the floor of that bill once again. Are there more votes, do you believe, do you know, as a function of what we've witnessed over the course of the last month or so? Well, we actually passed it out of the House on a vote of 218 to 211, and it was the most supported pro-abortion bill passed in the history of Congress. So um, I believe that those votes will hold. And I do have to say that we must note that the Senate vote was close. It was 49 to 51. And we should really hold accountable those two senators that are Republican that say that they are pro-choice. They could have cast their vote for it, and we need to hold them accountable. Congresswoman Judy Chu, we appreciate your being with us right now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up next, the January 6th committee's new plan for hearings next week as a major figure from inside the Trump White House agrees to testify. We will break that down. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. You're watching Meet the Press now. And we know that there will be at least one public January 6th committee hearing next week on Tuesday. And that behind closed doors, former White House counsel Pat Cipollone is expected to sit for an interview with the committee on Friday after he agreed to comply with the committee's subpoena. In other subpoena news, 
Senator Lindsey Graham now says that he will challenge his subpoena from a special grand jury in its investigation into Mr. Trump's attempt to influence the 2020 presidential election results, specifically in Georgia. Graham was subpoenaed there alongside six Trump lawyers in the Fulton County investigation. Blaine Alexander joins us from on the ground in Georgia, where she had an exclusive interview today with the Fulton County DA. And Sahil Kapoor has the very latest on the January 6th committee um, and their plans. He's at the Hill for us. Blaine, let me start with you. The latest on these subpoenas in Georgia. What do we know about this grand jury and how they're examining, what they're examining, and who else the DA might still summon? Well, Peter, I'll start with what we know. We know that we can expect more subpoenas to come. That's what the Fulton County District Attorney told me today. Uh, you know, this is the first time that she's spoken since we learned of those subpoenas yesterday. And she said in no uncertain terms that, yes, we can expect to see more subpoenas from people who are either close to Trump, inside his orbit, in his inner circle. I asked her, does that include family members? That include former White House officials? Basically, she said that nothing's off the table, including a potential subpoena of the former president himself. Take a look at a little bit from our conversation. Could we expect to possibly see from people in former President Trump's inner circle, former Trump associates? Yes. Are we talking about family members? Are we talking about former White House officials? I mean, we'll just have to see where the investigation leads us. But um, I think that people thought that we came into this as some kind of game. Um, This is not a game at all. What I am doing is very serious. It's very important work. And we're going to do our due diligence. Might we see a subpoena of the former president himself? Uh, Anything is possible. So there you heard it, Peter. Anything's possible. You know, one thing that I also asked about is the timeline of this. Remember, she's got a very long runway that she can use for this investigation. They can go until May of next year. That's how long the grand jury, the special grand jury can be convened. But when I asked her about the timeline, she said, you know, possibly looking at wrapping up the investigation by the end of the summer, moving into the fall. But she's not holding herself to that. She says she's not in a rush. The one thing she did say, though, is that when it comes to election time, so around the time that early voting starts here in the state of Georgia, so mid-October, October through election, she's going to suspend all of this. She doesn't want to even give the appearance of influence in the the election. So that's when we're not going to see any subpoenas, any indictments during that period of time here. So, Blaine, let me break down the Senator Graham situation, too. He responded in a statement to this subpoena, basically saying that he's going to challenge it. But how difficult is it to actually challenge a subpoena from a special grand jury? What are what are his options here? Well, you know, I asked her about that. I asked her about that very thing. And she's assured me that she's going to use every power available to her to compel him to come down here uh, to Fulton County to testify. But when I asked her about why she wants to hear from these individuals, she's made it clear that she really is casting a wide net. She wants to hear from anybody who possibly has any sort of knowledge of this alleged uh, election interference. So when I asked her about the fact that Graham intends to challenge this, she said she's going to make a compelling case as to why he has information that the grand jury needs to hear, that they need to consider. When, uh, when doing this investigation. So it's very clear that she's going to push back and has every intention of, of getting him to testify. And here. we know that Lindsey Graham had multiple calls with the Secretary of State there in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, and members of his team as well. So, Hill, let me turn to you, if I can, very quickly. Obviously, the pressure to hear from uh, Pat Cipollone had intensified after last, last week's explosive testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. Obviously, she was the former tro- top aide to the chief of staff for the president, Mark Meadows. There's obviously been concerns about Mr. Trump's plan to join his supporters. A lot of them 
were voiced by Cipollone himself. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable, he said. So how crucial is Cipollone's testimony? Well, they certainly see him as a, a crucial witness as part of this investigation, Peter. And we got a hint of uh, the extent of that last week when they dropped a, a subpoena on Pat Cipollone. He had informally talked to the committee back in April, and he had resisted uh, sitting down for a formal deposition until that subpoena. Now, the a chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, said that he is uniquely positioned to testify on matters central to their investigation. That includes uh, Trump's alleged knowledge and participation in that scheme to subvert the 2020 election result through the use of fake electors and trying to get the Justice Department to endorse his groundless claims of uh, mass election changing fraud. There's also the fact that the subpoena was dropped one day after that shocking testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, the former White House aide, who uh, said in a public forum under oath that Pat Cipollone had expressed fears to her about uh, the bad things that could happen if she allowed President Trump at the time to go down to the Capitol, as he had uh, apparently requested, he had suggested, Cipollone had, uh, according to Hutchinson, that there would be criminal exposure uh, for uh, several officials in the White House if that they allowed that to happen. So Liz Cheney, in particular, the vice chair of the committee, has been very uh, public about wanting Cipollone to testify. What remains to be seen is whether he's going to corroborate that testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson or perhaps whether he might see it a different way. Well, that, that's the big story, obviously, is whether he can help corroborate it. As I first reported on NBC News last week, sources close to the Secret Service said that those two individuals, one of whom Tony Ornato, uh, the former operations deputy chief of staff and one of the Secret Service agents in the vehicle. They do not deny the fact the president became irate and demanded the, they go to the Capitol. They, as we reported, corroborate that claim that was initially made by Cassidy Hutchinson. I want to also get details from you, if I can, about some of the movement on the Hill as it relates to the Democrats' reconciliation plan, what effectively we referred to as Build Back Better in the past. Where do things stand and, and, and is it likely I can get this thing done before the summer's out? That's certainly their goal, Peter. We are seeing more action on reconciliation just in the last few days than we have seen uh, since 2021, since December, when uh, the centrist Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia torpedoed the House pack passed Build Back Better Act. Specifically, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, has been holding secret talks with Joe Manchin about a slimmed-down bill. And just today, they reached a deal on a major uh, part of that, the prescription drug pricing uh, piece that they have uh, issued uh, 190 pages of text to that Senate parliamentarian to make sure it complies with the rules. We're also told that they're negotiating a major provision uh, worth $300 billion on uh, climate change and uh, energy funding that they hope to spend overall $500 billion. That could also include ACA subsidies to prevent that major premium uh, hike coming right. later this year, as well as a trillion dollars in revenue to uh, satisfy Manchin's demand of uh, half of it going to deficit reduction. It's, it's far from clear they'll get there, Peter, but uh, it certainly is alive right now. ACA, of course, the Affordable Care Act that affects pocketbooks of so many Americans in this country. Blaine, thanks for your excellent reporting on the ground in Georgia. Sahil, for you always, we thank you. And ahead right here, why a ritual of bipartisanship on the ball field may not be all fun and games later this month. Plus, what scientists say is next if Congress fails to act on climate change. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. 64 million Americans right now are under heat advisories today as the National Weather Service warns temperatures could skyrocket as high as 110 degrees in parts of the South and Midwest. 
yet another reminder of the impact of the climate crisis. And climate activists say they are not planning to let lawmakers forget it. The Washington Post reported last night that several climate groups are planning to disrupt the congressional baseball game later this month, protesting lawmakers in action on climate legislation. And while there has been movement from Senate Democrats on the reconciliation bill, as we just reported, that it's it's likely to include climate provisions, agreements on what policies could be included, those have not yet been reached. Joining us right now is Robinson Meyer. He covers climate and energy for the Atlantic. So we're grateful for your expertise on this, Robinson. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I want to get a sense right now about the existential crisis facing not just our country, but really our planet right now, if there isn't, as it relates to our country, congressional action immediately. The way you put it recently was a hotter, poorer, and less free America. We talk about this often, but how urgent is this need for action? It really needs to happen this year or next year. And there are a few reasons for that. The, the main one is that if we don't ha- cut America's carbon emissions substantially, let's say in half is the current Paris Agreement goal, we could fiddle around with that. But if we don't cut them substantially by the end of the decade, we really have no way to prevent more than a degree and a half of warming by the middle of the century. And that could mean huge heat waves, much larger than the ones we're seeing today within the 2040s, huge famines. I mean, the kind of inflation that we've seen so far is really just a preview of the kind of inflation that we might see if we see the kind of crop failures and shortages that we expect to see under a very intense uh, climate change scenario. We've learned so quickly about how interconnected the world is as a function of what's happening in Russia right now and what it's done to gas prices. You can imagine the droughts and the impact in terms of the access of the key commodities, grain and whatever else, if it's affected. I I do want to ask you about this reconciliation bill, obviously. We're crossing fingers that perhaps something gets done on that on this issue. Certainly Democrats are right now. Do you have faith and from what you're hearing right now that we'll have any of the climate provisions that can have any difference? I, what, from what I'm hearing, I think it will have substantial climate provisions. I mean, there's been great NBC reporting on that today. Uh, I think 300 billion is the number that's being discussed. Um, I, I, I think that they could do th- this bill could do substantial amounts on climate change. There is, you know, we previously had the Build Back Better bill to look at. And one of the shocking things is not only would any bill on climate kind of reduce American emissions, but it would also reduce all these conventional air pollutants. And so under the Build Back Better terms, which probably will survive to some degree in this bill, 25,000 more Americans will be alive in 2030 than would be under a kind of current environmental scenario just because of conventional air pollution. So in other words, it's going to cut conventional air pollution so much that tens of thousands of Americans who would die of heart attacks or asthma attacks or or kind of lung, you know, illnesses would would die by 2030 under the uh, or would serve, be alive that wouldn't be alive anyway. There was such a setback, obviously, from the Supreme Court for the Biden administration last week as it relates to their ability to regulate the pollutants, frankly, that are coming from coal plants, from power plants in this country right now. Basically, they said the government can't do this. The EPA can't do this. It has to be Congress that does this. Is there is there any belief that anything that comes out of this right now will help sort of turn the tide the other direction? And how significant is that setback? Yeah, I think there's two things to call it here. You know, the Supreme Court said the EPA could regulate some power plants. It just has to do it in a more constrained way. I think, frankly, the Biden administration was already thinking about kind of issuing climate regulations along those lines. They said it was devastating. They did say it was devastating. But of course, this is not the Dobbs decision, I would say, for climate. And of course, any the second thing is any reconciliation package, any kind of uh, 
agreement in Congress to subsidize clean energy actually makes it easier for the EPA to regulate because it will be cheaper. What will happen as a result of the Supreme Court decision is that they won't be able to do the kind of complex cap-and-trade, kind of cross-economy, carbon-reducing schemes that the EPA tried during the Obama administration. That's going to make it more expensive to regulate climate change. I think the EPA still sees some ways to do it. So one of the challenges right now, right, just let's get to the kitchen table issue here, the pocketbook for Americans. They drive past the marquees every day. Gas prices have soared, hovering just shy of $5 around the country right now. You have this push and pull where the Democrats are saying this is an inflection point. We have to turn the tide and start focusing on clean energy. And you have others saying, hey, we got to start producing and refining more right now. The White House is calling on, you know, these major oil companies to refine more. Their capacity, they're almost at capacity right now. They have a bunch of these refineries that are offline because they're pivoting to clean energy or because of weather issues or beyond. So where do these two meet and what do we do about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the way to think about it is there is a whole, there is a, there is a cross economy energy crisis happening right now. And we can see it in clean energy, where companies are waiting for the signal from Congress to invest. And we're also seeing it in the fossil fuel industry, where, frankly, big companies, big refiners, are wondering whether it makes sense to spend the tens of billions of dollars needed to construct new refineries or to keep online the ones that exist when they're like, oh, well, but there's going to be, everyone might have EVs soon. We really, they're struggling to predict that near-term oil forecast, that how much oil we're going to use through the end of the 2030s. I think that's one reason why reconciliation could be quite important here is because by locking in some certainty about where the country is going to head on clean energy, that will actually let fossil fuel companies be more certain, too, about how to invest, how to build new refineries, kind of to carry us through the end of this decade. Robinson Meyer, it's such an important conversation. Thanks for sharing your expertise on it. Thank you for having me. Appreciate your being here. We want to turn now to some breaking news in politics. Across the pond, calls are growing for the U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson to resign after a record number of resignations from members of his government. Today alone, Johnson survived a no-confidence vote last month, but his administration is now collapsing. It comes after new revelations about the prime minister's handling of sexual misconduct allegations against a political ally who he promoted to a top position earlier this year. Last night, two key cabinet members there stepped down. In total, 42 members of the parliament have now resigned. We're going to keep a close eye on this, and we will update you as the story develops. Up next right here, we're going to dive deeper into the many crises facing this White House and both political parties four months out from the midterms. We break it all down. You're watching Meet the Press now. We made incredible progress on the economy from where we were a year and a half ago. We got a long way to go because of inflation, because of the, I call it, the Putin tax increase. Now I'm fighting like hell to lower costs on things that you talk about around your kitchen table. Welcome back. That was President Biden just in the last hour in Cleveland. As we've mentioned throughout this hour, the economy is just one of the crises that this administration is dealing with right now. And joining me at the table, our panel, Washington Post political reporter Eugene Scott, the Boston Globe's Kimberly Atkins store and Republican strategist Doug Hay. It's nice to be together. Appreciate you guys being here. We got a bunch of time to talk about this. So let's get right to it. Eugene, let me ask you right now. Americans are fed up. They're fed up about guns, about abortion rights, about the Supreme Court about the president right now. This number is, is almost laughable if it weren't true, that only 10% of Americans right now think the country is headed in the right direction. So what in the near term, given White House allies tell me they think that 
that minds are going to be made up by the end of the summer. Mm. Can the president and Democrats do to sort of change the view of Americans in this limited window? Well, they're going going to have to address the things that Americans are looking at that it's leading them to say that they're unhappy. So we're going to have to see significant changes in inflation, some meaningful legislation related to gun reform that it's going to make people feel somewhat more safe and just addressing all of these other issues that so many but meaningful voters. meaningful legislation related to gun reform. They got something done. That's done. Right. Uh, well, it doesn't seem to be. We're still having this, the very much same issues that people. But there's no room for more movement on it. Well, we not agree? now. And so the so the white House and Democrats are in a tough position because they won't be able to change any minds considering that they can't do much more at this point. It feels like, Doug, right now there's a frustration that Democrats are saying to the president, just show us your outrage. Show us that anger right now. I mean, what gives on that front? Democrats aren't seeing the president as a conduit for their frustration at this moment. Yeah, well, two things. One, he's trying to not be Donald Trump, who obviously showed frustration every day on everything. Um, but two, I think if you look at where Republicans struggled in, in Congress over the past few um, Congresses, it was always that the, the groups that were the loudest, the Freedom Caucus or whomever, were saying, you have to fight. And it's one thing to be willing to fight. It's another thing to have the ability uh, to land your punches, knock your opponent down, actually win the fight. And this is where we see uh, sometimes outsized expectations of what you're able to do is just show that you fight and then you're going to be successful when the reality is when you have 50 Senate seats or when I worked in the House of Representatives, just the House, not the Senate, not the White House, your ability to get those things done. Uh, is really limited. We're going to get to this in a moment, but you were watching J.B. Pritzker in Illinois, just sort of a contrast in the way they handled this stuff. Gavin Newsom in California Mm -hmm. doing the same. The president was speaking at the 4th of July, just sort of said, we have to do more. We have to get this under control. J.B. Pritzker said, I'm angry. I'm furious about this. Kim, is this sort of public public frustration, this venting by Democrats, does it have a risk of being counterproductive as Democrats like Ro Khanna have now warned? Yeah, I think what they need to do is to stop fighting with each other about what the right strategy is and start telling the American people that they are fighting for them. I think that's the crucial point there. This is not Joe Biden's sweet spot. Joe Biden is not out in front, uh, arguing and expressing anger over things that are, are issues like abortion or guns. He wants to talk about inflation. He wants to talk about the economy. He wants to talk about those kitchen table uh, subjects that he think are, are led to his victory in 2020. But these times have changed. The world has changed in those into ensuing two years. And it seems that he's sort of behind the pulse of the American people saying, OK, well, now, yeah, I think the filib- you know, getting rid of the filibuster is OK. That's so little, so late. He needs to show an urgency, even if they are limited in what they can actually do legislatively, which I think they can do more than they're saying. But he needs to show that he understands the urgency to get people to go out again Mm -hmm. and vote, because if Democrats lose control of either House in Congress at this point, it will only get worse for Democrats. As the top House Democrats said to me recently, they said, we don't have to change the world. We just got to chip away at these problems, demonstrate that we're going in the right direction. Doug, I want to ask you about something that uh, Mitt Romney said, addressing the frustration that exists broadly uh, in America right now. He wrote this in The Atlantic about the denial the U.S. finds itself across the political spectrum. He says, what accounts for the blithe dismissal of potentially cataclysmic threats? The left thinks the right is at fault for ignoring climate change and the attacks on our political system. The right thinks the left is is the problem for ignoring illegal immigration and the national debt. But wishful thinking happens across the political spectrum. More and more, we are a nation in Denial is—is is this sort of the inevitable effect of an increasingly polarized country right now that we're stuck in this stasis? 
Yeah, absolutely. You could boil the Mitt Romney statement down to two words, one gridlock and the other being anger. And what we see is when voters are mad about one thing, regardless of whether they're Republicans or Democrats, if they're mad about one thing, they're more likely to be mad about something else. So when you have inflation at over 8%, then you see the situation at the border. Then you see the situation of rising crime, everything else that's going on. Obviously, if you're a Democrat, abortion, potentially guns as well, you're, st- you're already starting at a place of anger that's only going to increase. And so- I would say not just anger. What we're seeing from a lot of voters right now is fear. Mm-hmm. When, when it's related to abortion, when it's related to gun violence, and even the economy, people are afraid. And what Biden is not articulating to many people is that he understands their fear. Mm-hmm. And when people are afraid and they don't think you take their fear seriously, they're going to look for someone who they think is. So let's talk about that, Eugene, right now. I mean, it is striking. These conversations, you see, we're not even at the midterms yet. There are already folks talking about 2024, right? President Biden already approaching 80 years old, right, would be 82 at the time of his reelection. If it were to happen, there's new conversations about Gavin Newsom going after Governor DeSantis in Florida, J.B. Pritzker getting some attention lately in Chicago. He obviously has the means to basically subsidize an entire (laughs) campaign. As you look at 2024, is the issue the message or is it the messenger? I think it's going to be a bit of both. I think people are looking for a new voice, a new new ideas, people who understand where we actually are, someone who is not appealing to times gone by, someone who is not trying to make something great again or remember when they were in the Senate and how things used to be, but someone who knows where we are in 2022 and where we need to go and has answers to those real problems. Kim, is this fundamentally a progressive versus moderate issue for the Democrats right now or maybe a generational divide? What is it? I think it's a little of all of the above, and I think that just underscores the reason for Biden for his own political future, that he needs to do a better job of seeing that he understands uh, the fire that's down here. When people are looking for somebody else and your party is the incumbent, that's a big, big problem. And I think a a messy primary for Democrats would also be extremely damaging in 2024. What would be best for Democrats would be to find a way to get that energy behind their president. But it doesn't seem right now, especially given the way that some of these other Democrats are essentially running for president already, that doesn't doesn't bode well for him. Doug, let me get your take from the other side of the aisle right now. You look at a Pritzker, you look at a Gavin Newsom, these guys aren't going to run against Joe Biden. But if there were some void, you'd think traditionally the vice president would be the next in line. But right now I speak to allies of the president. They say, you know, I think I think most Democrats agree that she may not be the most capable candidate for the Democrats going forward. So what is the best strategy as you help the other side? Well, if you look at the polling of Biden, obviously we see low numbers, right? And when I was at the Republican National Committee in 2010, our magic number for Obama was 46. We felt if he was at or below that, we'd take back the House. And ultimately, he was at 44, 45. Biden's well below that. But to me, that's not the startling number for Joe Biden. It's a really low approval rating, relatively speaking, among Democrats. It tells me that a Pritzker, a a Newsom, who are making news nationally, are putting themselves in a position to run if that if that happens, maybe to challenge Biden or certainly to be at the beginning of that start line if Biden steps away. And at that point, it will be a free for all. How risky is that for Democrats, Eugene? Uh, quite risky, I would imagine. I mean, they need to figure out how they can get a message that is going to keep people instead of uh, people dealing with fatigue and just not showing up at all, which is a very real concern moving forward. Low turnout numbers. Abortion, guns, are they enough to turn the tide? I don't know. We've seen in the past guns not be enough. We've never seen Roe v. Wade being overturned. It's not clear that there are voters who wouldn't have already voted Democrat 
who the issue of guns or abortion may bring about. The Democrats hope there's some more moderate, independent-minded folks who may say, hey, you know this, we got to change this, and maybe that brings them in if they're disillusioned by both parties. But they're going to need to bring out a lot of folks, given the economy right now, to, to turn things. They are going to have to bring out a lot of new fo- yes. folks. That, that's, the, that's the problem. And a lot of people who they're depending on, folks in the suburbs, already know they can still get access to abortion in many cases. It, it, they and their loved ones can, so I don't know if that'll move the needle for them or not. Kim, Doug, Eugene, great conversation. Appreciate you guys being here and sharing your expertise and perspective. That's going to do it for us this hour. I'll be back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now, NBC News Now. Coverage continues with my friend Hallie Jackson. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.